Welcome to Model Rail Radio. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live on Skype, May 16th, 2020. Model Rail Radio is the Internet's only live-recorded radio show where the topic is the hobby of model railroading. I'd like to welcome on Roger Chrysler. Roger, as the lockdown, is the lockdown continuing in your part of the world currently? Are you still under lockdown? Yeah, I'm under lockdown. Some of the uh, places are opening up uh, some... This is a long weekend for us. Oh, okay. Interesting. What, whatever that means during during COVID, but uh, yes. <laughs> everybody's off anyway. But uh, more parks and that sort of thing, or golf courses are starting to open up and that sort of thing. So. But I'm not a golfer, so I'm still here. So You're calling into Model Rail Radio instead. We appreciate yeah, you calling. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> in terms of hobby stores, are, are they now offering... I mean, I'm not sure in our area, but there was some discussion associated with pickup. So you could call ahead, order some stuff, and then pick it up. Are you getting anything like that in your part of the world? Uh, yeah, there's uh, several hobby shops that are uh, offering uh, curbside pickup, that sort of thing, hmm. uh, as well as uh, still ordering... Still uh, uh, mail order as well, although the uh, mail sort of thing is uh, getting pretty busy nowadays. So near the start, I ordered some stuff, and it was here in, in like three days sort of mm. thing from Credit Valley. So Is Credit Valley doing curbside pickup, or are they just doing yes. mail order? No, they're doing curbside as well. Wow. Uh, limited, out, limited hours right now. I believe they're uh, Monday to Friday going from like 10 in the morning to 2 in the afternoon. Yeah, they have a few people in working there, but I'm kind of a, a contractor for them, so I don't need to be in the <laughs> store. And uh, I'd uh, rather stay away from all the icky people anyway that, uh, well, I a lot of friends, but uh, I'm in that kind of uh, gray area, mm. of course, hair as well, but uh, uh, more susceptible to uh, COVID than uh, otherwise, so... I'd rather uh, just chill at home and uh, until this thing uh, goes where it's going to go or settles down or oh, uh, goes on. So anyway, yeah, getting lots of work done in the house and uh, honeydews and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. but also uh, starting to expand my basement empire, mm. uh, throwing up um, stud walls, uh, ready to uh, do more basement finishing and that sort of thing. So looking forward to that stuff and... Uh, Last few days, I've been uh, working on the on that stuff. So, uh, luckily, uh, my father was as much a tool junkie as I was. So, <laughs> I uh, have lots of things like chop saws and uh, uh, sanders and all that kind of stuff to uh, do, as well as my own stuff I bought. I got a, uh, a stud nailer the other day. Uh, actually, a couple before all this happened, but uh, it was a good deal that I couldn't pass up. So, I figured, well, it'll. That'll pay for itself, and it is, so... Wonderful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I like the photos on the Facebook page. It gave a clear indication of exactly where you were. And also right. the anticipation. There was certainly anticipation in those photos, too. So yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts in terms of the amount of work before you start getting bench work up and things like that? Well, I've I've got some bench work up. Mm. I've got a, enough to keep me busy when I'm tired of uh, hammering in studs and doing drywall, <laughs> so... Uh, Varieties, uh, you know, you can you can stop one project and work on another one for a while. So Certainly. I got quite a bit of other stuff to do uh, when I get tired of doing the heavy carpentry stuff. But sometimes that's that's kind of fun too, uh, smelling the wood and all that kind of stuff. Nice, mm-hmm. nice sawdust and so on. Uh, yeah. So with the one photo you can see, uh, I got a pile of two by fours there, mm-hmm. and down the end I've got a. That's all my L girder from my other. Uh, 
previous layout that I mm-hmm. saved and stacked up there. So ready to go on new stuff. So, yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So are you participating in any of these, uh, you know, video calls or anything like that? Are you watching them or are you, um, you know, signing up or, you know, actively showing some of your work through that? Not so much that as, as much as, uh, just trying to show what I'm doing on, uh, on, uh, social media. Sure. Uh, I haven't, uh, haven't done any clinics or anything. I've, I thought about it, but I've, I've got a few in the can that I could give, but, uh, haven't done anything so far. Hmm. Well, Clark Cooning is demanding satisfaction. He wants to talk to you for some reason. Clark, do you oh. have audio? I do. No, I just I just talked to Roger just before the show. So that oh, was, did you? Okay. That's uh, all I was going to say. I was just yicking back and forth. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make sure Clark is happy because if Clark isn't happy, none of us are happy. So anyway, no, none of us are. No, <laughs> that's right. So okay, so lockdown going on for the you know foreseeable future. You have bench work in the mix. You've got some bench work up. You're progressively using it as a fallback when you're done, you know, putting up drywall, um, right. which makes sense. So what's your anticipation associated with time frame? You were pretty ambitious last time we talked, but it seems like you're even breaking that ambition now. You're doing even better than that. So do you have a revised time frame? Well, not really revised, but uh, there's still quite a bit of work ahead to finish this living area. Hmm. There's yeah quite a few stages, but uh, it was my idea that uh, in between the heavy work uh, and you know affording contractors and that kind of stuff to come in and uh, put up electrical and that sort of thing that I need that uh, I can always go back and uh, you know work on scenery and get a, get a little bit of uh, layout running for my grandson because he's uh, He's wanting to see it again, even though he's only uh, three years old. He's uh, mm. my biggest fan. So, of course. Um, Wonderful. Yeah, he was. Uh, he remembers it from when before we tore down the other one two two years ago. Gosh, he was uh, he was uh, reaching out his hand for the throttle and watching the cars go around, and always wants to uh, see trains run when I'm fixing other people's things. What are you working on, Grandpa? And that kind of thing. And Wonderful. I show him and. We have to try to run something, uh, even if it's back and forth on the test track. So, uh, of course, uh, right now he's in lockdown too. So, mm. uh, we're able to visit through the window sort of thing, but, uh, not up closest like we'd like to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Interesting times currently. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it sounds like you're, you're making a good degree of progress. And, you know, maybe when all this thing is said and done, there'll certainly be trains running by the sense of things. So I'm very impressed. Well, it's all. It's all this pent up uh, ambition, right? So uh, I, I tell people that I work on their stuff, and then I learn how to do it, and then I come home and I do it do it right on my layout. But uh, uh, ha- having you know worked on people's stuff for the last what nine years now at mm. uh, Credit Valley, um, uh, I do a little bit of my own. But this is uh, this is a great uh, time for me personally that uh, I can concentrate on. Uh, forging ahead with the layout Certainly. Uh, without feeling too guilty. Yeah. So when you came to this new layout prior to COVID, was your thought that you'd have a rotating crew or other people helping you out build it? Um, yeah. The space is that uh, I'd like to get that happening. Um, I have a couple guys that uh, they come and um, help me uh, do some of the, uh, the bench work and so on. But there's always in this this size of layout. There's always room for more people uh, as Certainly. long as they're you know have a good skill level and that sort of thing. 
sometimes it's uh, hard for me to schedule things because uh, I have to uh, do prep work before they come over and mm. have something for them to do. So, mm. uh, yeah, but we, we're having having fun anyway. Cool. So they enjoy uh, operating too, so I, uh, they're kind of new to it. So um, they're always interested to uh, see see some operation. The one fellow had a, a layout that uh, he's since torn down, but mm. uh, we were operating on that using um, JMRI, uh, switch lists and that sort of thing. And uh, they were kind of in- interested in uh, how I was operating and showing them a few things. Well, you need a passing track would be helpful here sort of thing, so you mm-hmm. don't have to run all around the layout to get to the other side of your train. So, uh yeah, they incorporated some of that ideas, but uh, yeah, lots of fun anyway. Yeah. Sounds that getting way, new, Yeah, getting new people involved more. So that's always been uh, my thing is to uh, involve other people and uh, get them just to get out and try it. Uh, Definitely. You know, not not sit back and be a bystander and in awe of what's going on. Just try it. It's not that hard once you get into it. Yeah, the benefit of passing sightings, I think, are an easy lesson to teach i would hope in the hobby yeah yeah <laughs> well most of my uh layout before all the little towns in it with the switching of the electrics mm. they all involved uh, a passing siding of some sort and Certainly. some even if it was just a passing siding and a team track a little bit of operation there so as you know you don't have to use a turntable or anything with traction you just turn the pole around the other way and run back so yes it's it's all very linear rather than you know big space eating wise or turntables or that sort of thing. Certainly, certainly. So that's that's what a shelf layout is nice that you don't uh, you don't need a lot of depth that way. Most definitely, most definitely. Well, thank you for kicking off the show, Roger. Always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm glad you're staying safe and you know planning and getting more work done than you had anticipated. That's always really good stuff. So thank you for calling in today. Great to chat. Okay, thanks for having me, Tom. I would like to welcome back up Richard Kowalski. Richard, it's been a while since we last chatted. What has been going on with the model railroading hobby with you? Are you currently on lockdown? What are your plans currently? Yeah, it's been a few years since I've been on. I took a short hiatus on my own railroad. Mm. And I've been operating on Friends Railroad, but since since they're all rather uh, older gentlemen, the operations have come to an end like many other things have. And uh, I started working on my layout, which is uh, shelf layout, HO scale, circa 1905. It's mm-hmm. a fictitious railroad in the northeast. I just started getting back into my own road just before the lockdown occurred, so I've been hot and heavy. <laughs> doing lots of kits and scratch building and um, i've got a kit bash box car right in front of me as we're talking now wonderful um one of the things that i have been working on is um i like operations and i wanted to incorporate some passenger service mm. into into this shelf layout so i thought about it a little bit and said well if my fictitious railroad's 100 miles long and I needed some passenger service on it, what what would it take for a train to leave the distant terminus, arrive at the southern end, which is what I model, and then leave? Mm. And as I was doing that, 
by the time I got to the third train, I noticed that the trains were passing each other at about the same location. Mm. So the first train in, heading back north, it met the second train, and then it met the third train, and so on. And as I developed this, I realized these are passing sightings and could be locations of the towns. So creating this passenger service, I effectively created the world that this railroad exists in. The towns mm -hmm. appear out of nowhere, essentially. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a, an interesting realization. And from that, I could develop it a little bit further. I said, okay, if I have towns at these locations, what are the names? So I went and looked for towns along the, the railroads that I, I'm kind of interested in here in the Northeast. Um, came up with town names. And I have a late 1890s Sears catalog, and I went through that and looked for some interesting industries that are for products that are in the Sears catalog from 120, 125 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I could create industries on my railroad in these fictitious towns just by going through the catalog. So just by thinking, I want a little bit of operations, I want passenger service. Mm -hmm. An entire world with towns and industries was the result. It was quite surprising for a 22-square-foot layout. Interesting. So is it 22 feet long, or is it 22 feet square, i.e. thinner or thicker than a foot? If it's... The total area is 22 square feet. It's, mm -hmm. it's down three walls, but it's a shelf that's only 18 inches deep at its widest. Okay. And... A couple of inches deep at its narrowest. Oh, okay. Interesting. We uh, have some hidden track that goes behind bookshelves mm -hmm. just so I could reach the unused wedge behind the entrance door. And that's where I've put my engine facility. And I also have another track that I can put the passenger cars and, and other cars and a locomotive, bring that out from that location. Mm. So it's essentially a staging area. Um, the primary way I get cars on and off of the layout is with car floats. Mm -hmm. So above this, above this engine area in this unused wedge, I can put the car floats, extra car floats up there that are already pre-staged. So I can have a constant number of cars coming on and going off mm. the layout and have trains appearing from behind the bookcases and come onto the, onto the main layout and do their thing and then leave that way as well. Cool. So how many towns have you settled on? The total is eight towns mm. spread out over about 100 miles. So the, the place that I'm modeling is a fictitious city called Bay Point, mm -hmm. and I'm right at the harbor. So I have uh, a dock, a wharf, a car float operation, a small float yard, and then another six industries along the back wall that I can switch. So it's it's quite an involved little switching layout that I have. It gives a bit of a puzzle. Mm. And I've come up with a, a matrix. So each industry gets so many cars per week. And I just look up and say, okay, it's the next day. Who gets what cars? And then when they get delivered, they're at that location for 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, depending on, on that industry. Hmm. So the layout can get a bit congested, the yard can get a bit congested, but that's also replicating a little bit of what was going on around the turn of the last century, too. There were quite a few times when the prototype roads 
would have cars everywhere mm. and they couldn't get at them. So they just left them there. Mm. <laughs> so if you look at, at many of the smaller yards and photographs from 120 years ago, 130 years ago, you'll see yards that are just packed full of cars. And that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to replicate. Fascinating. Fascinating. So when the layout gets completely congested, it's obviously very different operations to when the layout is running optimally associated with congestion. So talk through the the play elements of the operating session when it's completely congested. Is it possible for the locomotives to move any degree of distance between the towns or are they really kind of town blocked where they're just organizing whatever, uh, you know, is on the, the layout in those particular sections? Well, the layout itself is, like I said, relatively small. It's, it's mm. only 22 square feet total. So I'm just operating in, in this one part of the city down by the harbor. There are sufficient amounts of track where cars can be parked in off spots. So there are some industries like a, a cold storage and, and meat uh, company or a grocer where those refrigerator cars need to be moved with priority. But once they're empty, they can be hauled out and left somewhere else. Um, so there are places where the cars can be moved if there are available spots that do not um, have a car parked there. The cars can be put there. The yard itself, it has two arrival tracks and two departure tracks. So typically when a car float comes in, you pull the eight cars maximum that are on the float, put them in the arrival tracks, and then put the eight cars or as many as eight cars onto that float to get them out of there. And that gives you the space to do your classification in that location. So there are, there are ways to, to work with the congested layout. It never gets to a point where it's completely blocked and you can't move anywhere. Okay. But it adds the complications of when you want to classify, how you're going to classify, what can be moved, what has to sit. Back, at, back around that time as well, the fees that railroads were charged by other railroads for having foreign road rolling stock on, on their railroad was so low and the storage was so cheap that many industries would keep rail cars on their spurs and not unload them. They would use them as cheap or essentially free warehousing. So leaving cars at these industries without being unloaded also adds to the congestion. So there's so you can move that car if you need to, but it has to go back to where it was when you're done switching that spur. So mm. there's, it, it adds to the complication. So you have this small layout that the track plan isn't overly complex, but <laughs> moving the cars and getting them to the industries or not is what, what makes the operator think a little bit more. Certainly. And I mean, as a single person layout, this seems like a lot of fun in terms of just general operating interest and just all the permutations that you described seem to indicate for a single operator, this is many evenings worth of fun. But do you anticipate having multiple operators on the layout? I do. It, it was designed right from the start to, to have some form of operation mm. and to be usable by either a single operator, myself, or mm-hmm. maybe my wife if she wants to come in and run it, or up to two other operators. Mm. Uh, the way I've got it set up, I can keep the car float and yard operation busy enough for one person. Mm. Uh, another person switching the other industries because the traffic is coming and going. And then I would probably assume 
the engine facility that has the additional trains, passenger trains, and there would also need to be transfer drags coming from the unmodeled main yard mm-hmm. to the float yard and back, um, and then handling the car floats in and out and, and staging the cars and getting them over onto the layout. So I anticipate at maximum when it's really going with a couple of experienced operators, I could probably go three or three hours or so with two other people mm. on this layout. Or I can just handle a couple cars by myself uh, on, on an evening if I want to. Mm. So it has that full flexibility. Wonderful. What kind of locomotives are you running on the layout? We've currently got a couple of 440s, a couple of 060s. Mm. All four of those are Bachman. And I'm working on a couple of old roundhouse kits that are 260s. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, because when you described the operations, I was just thinking what kind of locomotives would actually be, you know, working within each town and also obviously transporting between the towns. But you've set it up perfectly. Very interesting stuff. I think I have. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of, I mean, you mentioned it being kind of freelance prototype combination. You mentioned using a Sears catalog, which I think is really interesting in terms of finding um, what industries are on the layout. But what other historical things have you gone back and looked at? What what things have really added flavor to it? Do you have, you know, films or books or what kind of things are you using to create the environment? Well, there's there's the architecture, of course. It's a little bit different. There, there were no or very few cast concrete structures that, that went up more than a few stories. I do have mm. one cast concrete warehouse on the layout. The rest are brick. I have part of my dock is dedicated to a palm oil operation. Mm. I had seen a photograph of a number of tank cars on a dock that were being loaded from a manifold that was connected to a ship. And this was a, a petroleum oil dock that I was seeing. But the they had hoses that came off of the manifold and were put into the hatch on the tank cars. Mm-hmm. So it didn't have this um, steel infrastructure or racks like we see now for for tank facilities. So it was real basic operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, back at that time, palm oil was primarily coming from Africa in the British, German, and Belgian empires and their colonies in Africa. Mm. So you could, depending on how interested the observer or operator is, you can delve into pre-World War One empires and environmental <laughs> damage and mm. you, know, you can go the whole route or you can just that's an industry that's taking in palm oil and it gets shipped to a company in cincinnati called globe soap um, palm oil was used for soap and also for it's an edible oil so it could also be used for margarine mm. at that time um i've seen a few other period photographs of the docks in new orleans where they they have men unloading a ship by hand and they're carrying loads of bananas and putting them in uh, refrigerated cars. Mm. So on my wharf, I have that included as well, where there's a, a banana importer from that period as well. So so there's, there's different ways to incorporate the different history and, and see some things that you don't see today or even in the more typical transition era layouts. Mm. Lots of options, Richard. Lots of options. Yes, yes. Well, one thing that also was occurring at the time was child labor. Yes. So 
So I'm, I'm having trouble finding figures of children that I can use as laborers on the layout to mix in with the adults. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's yet another thing that you don't consider today that eight, 10, 12 year old children were working right alongside adults doing manual labor. Yes. Yes. Clearly very different times. Clearly very different times. Absolutely. So. The question that we asked, and you haven't been on for a while, but a question that we've asked recently that I want to put out to folks, train shows, perhaps a thing of the past, certainly currently not really to be considered. But in terms of you and the hobby, do you have favorite train shows that you remember historically or ones that you attend currently? Unfortunately, no. When I was younger, I wasn't, the the shows were not as widespread, I wouldn't Mm. think. And now... In my current age, I'm, I'm, my work schedule is such that I work nights and I work uh, constantly rotating days off. So it makes it kind of hard to yes. attend train shows or even like the local NMRA meetings. Mm. So typically, by the time I wake up, they're already finishing up the meetings. Yes. So, okay. So you don't have a history. I mean, in terms of the hobby, it, it came through other means than attending train shows. No, not really. I'm, I'm mostly a lone wolf, and other than being able to operate on, on friends' layouts locally. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So, as you listen into Model Rail Radio, are there any topics that we should be covering that you haven't heard or you'd like to hear more about? No, I've, I've been going over a number of the episodes that I hadn't heard recently as I've been working, and you've got a pretty large and, and widespread mix of things. I think it keeps your interest. Quite a few people talking about different subjects keep you going. Terrific. I always like to hear that. It, it amazes me that I can put these shows together just by putting a kind of finger in the wind and seeing who's on Skype any particular Saturday. But also what's interesting is moving to the weekly format. I was really quite concerned that the format would get stale very quickly because, you know, we'd have same callers and this kind of stuff. But we've had quite a diverse set of callers for the weekly shows. So, yeah, just proves that... Well, you- Continue, You've mentioned on a recent show that you have the one one contributor on, on the Facebook page from Japan, mm. and, and I've been interested in seeing what he's doing too, and I, I do hope that he can call in as well. It would be interesting to, to see more of Japanese modeling as well. Certainly. To hear more about it. Yeah. Well, he's from Taiwan originally. He now lives in Japan, and he's just a fascinating gentleman. I befriended him on Facebook, and... Uh, We've had some exchanges to try and get him on the show, but I think we just need the moons to kind of align and everything to be in place in order to get him on. But you're just an amazing character. Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of the situation with me. I realized, oh, he's doing weekly shows, and and I happen to be off from work this week, the way our schedule aligns. So it's like, oh, this is perfect. I can do a little bit of modeling and listen to the show and maybe chat a little bit. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Richard, it's been a pleasure catching up. Your layout sounds absolutely fascinating. If you can post photos to the Facebook group. I mean, I just think the idea, and certainly we've had some discussion in the chat associated with what 22 square feet with varying width means. In terms of its raw length, how long is your layout? Let's see. The actual layout, I would say one one leg is probably about seven feet long. That's mm-hmm. where the one wharf and the, the float yard and car float operation is. And then the main switching part of the layout is probably nine feet. Okay, gosh. So, so it's shorter than I anticipated. You, you fit in a lot with the eight cities, right? Or eight that's, towns. That's what, that was what 
uh, well, I don't have, I'm not modeling all those cities. Those are are imagined other towns that fell out as I was developing the passenger schedule. Mm. Um, It it was more of a, what if I had these trains and they started a hundred miles away? When would they arrive? Uh, Where those trains were meeting, those fictitious trains were meeting. Yes. it, It kind of, the towns fell out of that. Interesting. Okay. Well, Richard, thank you very much for calling in today. You know how we do things. Please stay on the line. If anything comes up, we want to fly with a chance to, to chat with you. Uh, but, yeah, thank you much for calling in. A pleasure chatting as always. Take care. Thanks for having me. I'd like to welcome on Mike O'Donny. Mike, you periodically called into these these lockdown shows in terms of the model railroading hobby in terms of the lockdown how are things with you currently i am doing quite well uh here's a piece of trivia mm. uh richard richard mentioned palm oil mm. um, one of the uses of palm oil today clearly not 120 years ago but when you have a continuous casting steel uh mill a you know re- reheating mill mm-hmm. they lubricate the steel with palm oil mm. when it goes through the colors. so uh interesting so, so there's one more load that can be uh, delivered to your continuous casting mill. Yeah, the and, temperature uh, vi- viscosity characteristics for palm oil are really fascinating because it's, it's used in everything from cosmetics to food, but yeah. it is the viscosity and temperature characteristics that make it, you know, particularly useful. And it's uh, one of these strange... When I came to this country, initially I actually had a bit of an allergy to palm oil as used in food because I'd never had any exposure to it prior to coming to the US. And it's interesting, it's it's really on the very fringes of dietary like oils. But still it fits in there perfectly. So yeah. Well I mean you have soaps like palm olive, which mm-hmm. comes from palm. So, Certainly. And olive trees maybe. So uh well um to summarize, I'll have what I'll have what Richard's having. Mm. Um I have a layout that is made up of eight modules mm-hmm. that is uh essentially um a uh, say eighteen by six foot layout, and if you unfold it, it would be a uh, uh, thirty inch by thirty six foot mod, uh, layout. Mm-hmm. But, um, Richard, I have I have eight towns. Um, my way of running it is to uh, to essentially a train will go out with a string of cars that will be for two modules. In other words, two towns. Mm. And they will, they will switch eight industries, and then they will collect what was there before and then come back. However, a few trains will go out and drop off four cars mm. at, at every other industry. And when you're done switching your eight, the dispatcher will say, oh, by the way, there's four more cars there for you to switch. Pick them up, switch them, and then bring everything back. Mm. Or pick up what's there, switch every town like you're the local switcher, you know, that you're yes. the... They would switch her, and you don't come home. And yes. then you come home, and, and newer operators will get an assignment of simply dropping off four cars at three or four places around the layout, which, uh, since I don't have a lot of passenger operations, passenger operations are often used in layouts as a way of getting to know the layout. So if I sign up for the Silicon Valley lines, I want to sign up for a passenger train, because that way you learn every time. Yep. And once you know the towns, because you, you really, you really don't get a feel for the layout until you have feet on the ground and run mm. a train through it. And, uh, so 
So I'm doing the same thing. I, I have rather the funniest thing about all this is that we are pushing the Golden Spike Award in the uh, Pacific Coast region. And part of the Golden Spike is to model eight square feet of layout, which for a mm-hmm. module is a standard size module. But I looked at my modules and I said, every single one of these modules is a refurbished, reworked module from someone before me. I've never built a layout, so I'm actually mm. building the eighth one of the eight is going to be built from the ground up so I can get the golden spike because it'll be the only thing I've built from pure wood. Everything else has been modified. Mm. So, uh, so now my my way of doing social distancing is is to have a dispatcher and you come to my driveway and you go and operate your train. And when you've reached a point where you're done, you call the dispatcher, and he says, okay, hold position, get out of there, and send the next guy in to do the next train. So everybody, every time the layout is there, it only sees one operator, and you rotate in and out because after a while you're going to say to the dispatcher, he says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm still in, in Autumn Forge. I want to get home. And he mm-hmm. says, okay, you're next. I'll give you, give you a route and give you clearance. So, um, but, yeah, what Rich is doing is, is, is exactly what I'm doing. Um, uh, like he, he mentioned, there's a lot of industries. In other words, he looked at the Sears catalog and said, what did they make? And everything that got made got made in a factory. And, uh, um, in fact, I should, I should copy his pages or get a 1905 Sears catalog off of eBay or out of a library or something and, uh, and, uh, go through that. I'm sure I could find something that's been scanned and, uh, that to give ideas for, for products and, I'm, I'm old enough to have remembered my dad getting a notice to go down to the freight station to what was called a peddler car. And you went in the car, and in the car, and his compartment was like, you know, D8. So he walked down to the eighth column, and the D shelf was the package being sent to him. And he picked it up and walked over to the freight clerk. They checked it, and that's how he got his freight. And uh, that peddler car would hang out in my town for you know, maybe half a day, and then they would move it to the mm. next town for the afternoon, and then the next day the peddler car would get to the next town, so it would go up, you know, three or four miles a day. Certainly. How they did it. So, I mean, I would add a peddler car to my layout just for just for old time's sake. Certainly. So, I mean, the Sears catalog used to contain houses and things. It's really oh, yeah. fascinating, just, just as an artifact of Americana. I mean, we have international listeners. Find, and I've seen PDFs online. I remember... Actually, when this came up on a show maybe eight years ago, and you can find PDFs online of Sears catalogs, it's well worth, if, if you've never been to the U.S., just flicking through it to get a sense of the kinds of things that were available through Sears. Mm-hmm. Well, I, uh, I remember getting a kick out of when Khrushchev came to the U.S., to the U.N. back in 1960. They took him out to what they call the Sears catalog store, and these were stores in small towns where they actually didn't have a lot of merchandise, I mean, very little merchandise, they had a catalog. And you went up to the catalog, flipped through the catalog, ordered something, and two or three days, it was fairly quick, two or three days later, what you ordered appeared. And uh, the uh, the Russians just totally freaked out when they turned to the pages of girdles and bras, because they'd never seen a commercial catalog with such scantily clad women. <laughs> so, and uh, the uh, Life magazine put a picture of all these you know, Russian diplomats in these big baggy suits that, uh, um, you know, the mm-hmm. eight yards of cloth in a suit for a Russian. And, uh, 
but um, but yeah, they um, um, the people in other countries have no have no concept of that paradigm of uh, of catalog shopping. And there were there were three or four people, three or four companies. Montgomery Ward was another, mm. and it was a company called Jewel Tea, which kind of replicated it in a grocery fashion. Mm. And, and you ordered groceries from a catalog, and you phoned in your order if you lived in uh, an area that had phones and uh, that weren't long distance. And if you lived in the boonies, you wrote a letter. Mm. And uh, they would send back a letter and say, okay, um, your order is coming in two days or three days because, uh, surprisingly enough, you know, 80, 90, or 100 years ago, mail moved fast. Mm. Uh, I mean, literally, it, you mailed your letter. And if you mailed it from a post office, first of all, stuff left the post office every hour. Mm. And when it was put on a train, it was sorted on the train. Yes, certainly. And depending on how long a train it was. I mean, obviously, if you're going from, say, uh, Oakland to Richmond, you're going to get a rudimentary sort. But if you're going mm. from Oakland to Sacramento, by the time you got to Sacramento, everything would have been in, uh, back then they were called zones. Mm. Every, everything would be in zone order. And... Some of them would even be what they call a cased, where they uh, they knew which zone had which, um, especially a city like Sacramento, where you have a grid system with mm-hmm. you know numbered and lettered streets. When it got there, that mailman could take that block of mail off the train and just literally walk his route. It was already sorted. And uh, but I mean, they, things move fast, and you had two deliveries a day. Yes. And uh, and uh, so so the, I was just going to say that. Yeah, I was just going to mention that that back at that time, my father was born in 1918. Um, that he would talk about that they would get a morning mail delivery and an afternoon mail delivery twice a day. It was pretty amazing. Yes, uh-huh. and the a nice it was three cents to mail a letter, but if you mailed it within your city and didn't seal it, just tucked in the flap, it was only two cents. Mm. And uh, um, and you know, obviously, as kids, we were stamp collectors, and. Uh, the post office very quickly found that if you made commemorative stamps, people would buy them and not use them, mm. which was, you know, entire countries like Monaco and Israel um, and Angola would make one third of their um, revenue from stamps. Certainly. Vatican City. And uh, um, that's that's what I've been doing. We uh, I've been following um, Gordy with his mm. online NMRA show. Yes. And uh, it's... Um, it's quite good. Fascinating gentleman. Were you on when yeah. I had the chance to chat with him? I I don't think I was on, but I did I did hear the show. Yes. Yeah. And he uh, he lives in well he lives in Scapa Flow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a neighbor. That's there. You know his mailman and Scapa Flow's mailman are the same mailman. Mm. And uh, so uh, he is in. He, I think he's closer to the Arctic Circle than he is to London. That's what and, they say. But I've actually flown to Sweden, and I think Orkney is not as Fine. I, I think that's what they say as a joke. But no, right. I know Orkney very well. When I was a boy, I had a pen pal from the Shetland Islands. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. the whole, and I lived in Australia at the time, which makes the Shetland Islands really the other side of the world. And I remember studying in great detail on a map where these various places were. Now, t- to be fair, he's actually from Greater Manchester, isn't he? I mean, he's actually, like, his origins are Salford and these areas, I thought. Um, yeah, he's a city. He's a big city boy, but his wife yeah. is from that area. Yeah, she's uh, she goes back to the um, you know, that whole area is like, like you say, Sweden. It's half Viking, hmm. and uh, her uh, her uh, ancestry is is uh, 
is Scandinavian, and that, that's the reason they're there is because their family is up there. Yeah, certainly. Know how that is. I was in Vegas for a few years because of that very reason. So, yeah, no, he's a fascinating character. I mean, I it was just wonderful to have a chance to chat with him, particularly about the technology choices that he's made, because I think that's where it gets very interesting with what he's doing. And yeah, yeah, it's it's difficult because you want something that's free. You want something that's broad based. In other words, there's only so many people that subscribe on YouTube. Yeah. I mean, most of us find YouTube programs by accident. Mm. Don't subscribe. Whereas mm. Facebook has a broader reach. But I think once things Do you get think known, that's the case though. I mean, I I have a huge YouTube subscription base because I'm a very active user. I pay the twelve, fifteen dollars or whatever a month, so I don't get ads and these kind of things. But I really, I I don't think there's any proper surveying demographically associated with where people get their content from. And I think what fascinates me through this, and I think I was talking with Clark Cooning, maybe someone else. In a previous show, I don't know if if you took if you took a model railroader just off the streets, a sample of population of model railroaders. What's the likelihood? Do you think that that person has an email address, a Facebook account, a cell phone that you know they use as a smart cell phone for want of a better term? I mean, do you think the model railroading hobby has a good overlap with regards to these technologies to start off with, or do you think really what we have is a very rarefied group of us? That, you know, do podcasts, YouTube, all this kind of stuff. And we seem to be, you know, taking this direction, you know, well, taking the conversation in a very particular direction. But how applicable do you think this is to the average model railroad? Well, given the age of model railroaders, um, a lot of them aren't into technology at all. You know, they have non-smartphones. They have a cell phone that's a phone. That's it. Um, there's a huge age, you know, heavyweight age spectrum on our hobby. Now, anybody in the hobby under 60, I would imagine 90% of them have email addresses, 85% are on eBay, uh, I mean, are on eBay and on Facebook, 80% are on YouTube. And uh, Do you think that's um, the case, though? I think it's if they're, for their, if they're younger than 60, mm. they've adopted these technologies. Mm. Uh, when, you, when you look at Model Railroader and the NMRA magazine mm. and you see him doing write-ups on layouts that are being used for operating sessions or just layout shows you know open houses mm -hmm. there are very few dc layouts left and they're all uh, well rogers all. rogers i mean i think roger might have a good vantage point for what he does with credit valley yeah and he seems to think that you know dcc isn't as prevalent as was we would hope it would be in the hobby and i kind okay. of feel that as well because i've i mean my experience Meeting people who then discover that I'm also the host of Model Rail Radio, who have layouts, for example. I met a bunch of academics in this circumstance. Very few of them have DCC. They are able to do the hobby in very 1950s kind of protocols, perhaps from you know what they learned from their parents or maybe even their grandparents. So well, I don't know if there's yeah. ever been a, a meaningful. If, if anyone would know, it would be Clark Cooning. Clark Cooning, do you have audio? I know you're back. Let's let's bring your audio back in. I have audio, sir. Go ahead. In terms of your broad surveying of the hobby, have you ever seen any socio-demographic analysis associated with what the average model railroader is in terms of, you know, are they DC? Are they DCC? Do they have a smartphone? Have you ever seen a breakdown of the hobby in that regard? I'm not sure if I can say positively I have, but... Um... 
one of the really interesting um, talks that was given at a convention was done by uh, oh, his name will come to me. He's the guy in Toronto, and he uh, he did a whole thing on demographics and 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 what it is in the hobby, and it was very very interesting and about social media. Mm. Uh, what were his thoughts? Trevor Trevor Marshall. Was, Trevor Marshall uh, was the man. Yeah. Yes. It was uh, it was fascinating and what are his thoughts though specifically, Clark? Well, he was saying that as if we don't get to people, younger people, and mm. and basically talk to them on social media, tell them in a very concise thing what we're doing, and if it interests them, they come out. Mm. If if it's not of interest to them, they move on. Mm. Um, and but that's uh, a different it, problem, right? That's about bringing in new people. Meaning that if you want to bring in new people, you need to well, have a presence on these platforms, basically. I wouldn't even say new people, though. Mm. I would say I would say just younger people. Like, Certainly. oh, that doesn't interest them. They just move on. Yeah. Whereas some of us older guys, oh, it's more railroading. We got to – we're going to pay attention. Yeah. Yes. And um, so it's – it is a kind of unique thing. Uh I wish I could recall some of his points, but it's been a while now. Uh, and uh, maybe I'll have to try and uh, contact Trevor and see if we can get uh, try and get a hold of him. Now, I see Roger has just uh, chimed in uh, in the chat about uh, they don't want DCC because they have so much to convert, he says. Yes. And I and I've heard that when we've when I was working in the store as Roger uh, notes. Mm. Uh, um, but on the other hand, and just as an example, uh, guys up here, when I first moved up here, they were against DCC. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I, you know. And yes. one of the big things was they didn't have anybody to take them by the hand. Certainly. And they were afraid of spending a fair amount of money and not having any help mm. in yes. order to get it to work. Yeah, certainly. That has changed considerably, not only up here. But everywhere you go, because there is just so much DCC now, and exactly. I think if you go on any of the forums, if you ask a question, you're going to get an answer uh, to. Uh, they're going to get a, an answer to your problem within within a few minutes. But this um, isn't really. I mean, to, to get back more to the discussion with Mike, I'm I'm clearly Gordy's biggest fan. I mean, I think. Everyone who has had anything to do with any of the podcasts or YouTube or anything like that see exactly the vision that Gordy is providing. Right. That being said, even at the board level, and I've experienced this more than a decade ago when I tried to explain to the board what a podcast was and how it had virtually limitless growth potential. And, you know, you could see the skepticism in the furrowed brows then. I don't know. I mean, obviously, the board has changed iteratively in the past 10 years, but I don't really get a sense that the board is even 95% represented by active technophiles that are drinking all the Kool-Aid that clearly you and I and Mike O'Dorney and, and Gordy are drinking. So the transition of the NMRA of an organization that fully embraces the stuff that Gordy is doing is still, there are still a few iterations to go before we get there. But I oh think sure, what is and I think, but I think yeah. that's in any that's in any group. You've got the the traditionalists, yes, 
and then you got the new movers and shakers. Yeah. And in between it, they move at glacial speed. Yes. <laughs> but I think, I think what interests me is the, certainly talking about Gordy, the, the bridging technologies. Yes. Like maybe, obviously Facebook video is very good for people on Facebook. YouTube, I think, has a slightly broader reach if people aren't subscribed and, you know, what if they're just watching it passively, if it's presented to them passively through an email link or something like that. But he was also talking about the potential of having an independent platform for this, which I yeah. think particularly with the stuff he was talking about with HD and this, this, you know, Barry Silverthorne. I know Barry Silverthorne. This is a conversation that I've had perennially with Barry Silverthorne and he's actually, you know, historically created these platforms. So I think it's an interesting time for the hobby and particular for, for visionaries. Let's use that term with regards to Gordy specifically. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this works out where you can get the kind of maximum NMRA membership buy-in through experience or whether it's always going to be, you know, the whatever percentage that is on the social media, very heavily active, these kind of things. So what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think it needs to move to a more pluralist system or do you think it does just fine doing what it's doing? I, I would like to see expansion in this area. But I've always said that. Now, there's a fine line. Um, and, and just as an example, number many years ago at a division meet, one of the things that they brought in was you need to be an NMRA member. You couldn't just be a, a division member. You had to be a full member. Mm. And one guy stood up and says, I'm not joining the NMRA. I come here to be entertained. Mm. But he didn't want to be part of the community. Mm. He just wanted to take whatever he could at the lowest price. Mm. And I think I think a lot of the NMRA people, and including myself, because when you work so hard for an organization, you build it up. Mm. There has to be there has to be both the give and the take. Mm. Um, I but, think you have to, this to you, support Clark. it. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I think here's the thing. For every one of those guys, there's going to be 10 guys that join the NMRA, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, my view is that these are clearly the vocal. It's the same. The people that go to hobby stores and then buy online. I mean, yeah. pretty reprehensible, not really giving back. You'd hope that they were in the minority. And I think what's interesting is if you create a structure, you can create structures which force them into the minority. More than anything. I mean, I think sure. what's, what's fascinating through this is if you, if you create a walled garden immediately based on your concerns that there's just going to be a bunch of people hanging out, not actually getting interested, you fail to realize what the nature of the hobby is fundamentally. It's about getting people involved where they have to start putting in track and they have to start, you know, building structures and doing the electrical. They have to move into this because this is what is the hobby, right? This is what's interesting right. them and getting them in. And I think through that, if people can't determine, I need to know something about like track gauge alignment, you know, I need to work through this. So, well, the NMRA sells a little thing, but also the NMRA maintains the standards. So oh, that's interesting. I'll buy this DCC thing and this DCC thing with another company. They work together. Well, that's the NMRA maintaining standards, right? So, and, and, and that's where we have to, I totally agree with you. You have to educate mm. your consumer yes. to be part of the organization. Certainly. 
And I totally agree with you. I don't know if, Roger, can you you chime in? Because I think your point uh, in the chat is very taken. Uh, come off and join us if you don't mind, if you, if uh, Mr. Barbelly doesn't mind me saying so. so You're always a co-host, Flag. I think that uh, during this time especially, that uh, in order for people to communicate, that all of a sudden the NMRAs, you know, they've got this uh, virtual convention going on, something that last year would probably never have happened hmm. without this crisis that's ongoing now. Uh, you know, no NMRA uh, uh, national convention for the year. It's it's I see it as exactly like, you know, a crisis during one of the one of the wars, like, mm. for instance, like aviation during the First World War. You know, they're, they're going from box kites to, to bombers in four years sort of thing. Certainly. This is this is exactly the, the kind of crisis that opens up the NMRA's eyes that all of a sudden, you know, things are happening. We've got uh, virtual clinics. People are zooming all over the place and that sort of thing. You know, we've got governments that are cabinet ministers that are meeting virtually online. That's what they have to do in these days. So it's uh, all of a sudden the te- technology that was always there, it's being adopted at a, ri- a dizzying rate that mm. uh, uh, before they, you know, these old fogies in the NMRA, they, they'd be resisting this sort of thing. Well, that's the, the new reality now. Now, one of the, one of the things uh, that I um remember from a survey and i forget who did it but the average model railroader has no bigger layout than a five by nine and i think that that says a lot what the the average model has basically a ping pong model railroad he doesn't have uh basement size layouts he doesn't have that's his. That's all he has is a is that space and and generally it's that square that five by nine and the tracks go around the circle, and that's that's what model railroading is to them and and uh, that's what the average person has. So when you look at that context and then you look at maybe what we're talking about in model railroading, it can be a little daunting. And I think but that, you have the micro layout folk to bring down the average as well. I mean, I think. Certainly what's happened in the past few years has been the module community and the micro layout community have developed voices in the hobby that are very well received by these people that don't necessarily have the space or are in situations where they're constantly moving or, you know, these kind of things. So I think historically, and probably the average may remain roughly the same because you've got communities now, I mean, you talk to Mike Adorni and what have you, the, the module community enables you to grow that space incrementally over time so i think the perspective we really do need a surveying of this thing and i don't know i mean you know if the magazines do it it skews a particular way if the nmra were to do it i think it might skew another way but it's interesting having this discussion without the underlying demographic analysis because we really are kind of spitballing potential ways things could go I, I totally agree there, and I, I, uh, a survey of that type would be very interesting to see where where that all lies. And uh, uh, I know Roger and I uh, have talked about that at even at the store. Like, I wonder what size that layout or that uh, fellow's layout is. God, he's bought a lot of stuff or whatever. Now, mm. I think T-Track mm-hmm. has made a huge inroad 
to model railroaders who are either on a budget or limited space. I think they have done a fantastic job at promoting model railroading. I mm. really do. I mean, we can say all module communities have done it. Well, true, in various, true. In various but ways. I mean, in, in numbers, yeah, I think T track, and the reason is they're easy to carry, they're easy to travel sure. with. They're yeah. you know that makes a difference. And again, why? Because we're kind of an aging demographic, and lugging a a five foot module around out of your back of your van, I'm not doing it anymore. Hmm. Well, even the big mega basement layouts are really an anomaly. They're hard to maintain and that sort of thing, hard to build in the first place. I know that they, they're popular in the magazines because they're pretty impressive sometimes, but uh, I think they should be still be showing more impressive smaller layouts, uh, modular size or shelf switching layouts. Uh, the Ian Rice type of... Uh, modules that are layouts that are are popular in Britain and so on. Those are the more typical ones. They should be getting a lot more press than the the big ones. I know my foray into the, my second basement spanning empire, it's uh, daunting to, especially at the the age I am now Mm -hmm. uh, to see whether it's ever going to be done or not. But uh, you always have to uh, plan ahead and and be inspired to do something down the road. So uh, Anyway, that's just just my idea. Anyway, I think we've covered this topic pretty well. We've we've historically covered this topic. I mean, this is really the COVID nineteen discussion point, which takes into account also the lack of shows and other things that may become the new normal through this thing. Uh, but yeah, I'd love to have Gordy back on just because it was kind of a luxury chat and very similar to you know when I talked with folks like Kaylee Zhang as well. You know, a lot of these young movers and shakers in the hobby have a particular vision which is just fascinating to explore. And that's certainly what I got out of my conversation with Gordy specifically, was that he has a very interesting vision, a relatively mature vision as well, and he is just working out how the permutations of the implementation, which I think is very similar to the Open LCB folk, right? They similarly had something that they wanted to get done in the hobby, and it was really the strategy associated with how to get the NMRA to pick it up. And 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 I think that's one of the things that... I'll call it the establishment, was Mm. always afraid of, was if we try something and it doesn't work, that makes us look bad. Whereas younger people go, hey, let's try it and see if it works. If it doesn't, what have we lost? And we'll go on to something else. Exactly. And and if you have success, like Gordy has had with this convention, uh, Mm. then it's like, hey, this works, you know, Okay, what's the next thing that could work? Mm. And mm. I think that does scare some people. Certainly seeing into your space, seeing into Jim Gore's space, worth the price of admission for NMRAX. I'm hoping we'll get Jim Gore back on. I know he, Gore manager seems absolutely palatial. He said there's like a, a fireplace in it, all 12 rooms or something <laughs> like that. He might have been joking. That could have been a joke. But anyway, I'm looking forward to having a chance to chat with Jim Gore somewhere through the lockdown time. Clark, Mike O'Dorney, Roger, thank you very much for uh, for wrapping on this extended topic. But, yeah, I don't think we're going to solve anything through this discussion, but certainly wonderful to see Gordy operate and wonderful to see what's uh, coming through this. And in terms of the lockdown, really inspiring community content that is getting people talking, which I think, and you know, perfectly, perfectly pitched. 
Thank you all for, uh, for having the chance to chat today. I would like to welcome on Mike Slater. Mike, I'm just about to wrap up the show. This is going to be a bit of a short one, but I wanted to have a chance to chat with you. I am just finishing editing the discussion of your going to train shows with your father. And I think it was just such fascinating. I can't recall if we'd ever had, the, you know, explored that topic to the degree of depth. But you were certainly someone who was so totally, the hobby for you means something more than just the hobby in general. It's a means of community. It's a means of doing good in community. There seem to be so many different parts to that. And having the chance to chat with you about your experiences with your father early on going to these train shows really made it very clear to me that this is like basically your background to the hobby and your philosophy with the hobby going forward. So it was a wonderful chat. Oh, great. In terms of this discussion, in terms of NMRAX, in terms of obviously what the Twin Cities are doing, what do you, what are your hopes in terms of what will come out of this crisis currently? Well, first of all, I, I hope it, it puts the NMRA in a better light with the, a younger generation. Mm. Um, that's one hopeful thing that I, I can see. And it just as being a superintendent of a division, talking with past superintendents of the division and that, and just seeing how greatly the, uh, division has shrunk over even a, a 20 year period. It's almost like pulling, uh, hen's teeth to, uh, attract new membership into the organization. At least with, even though we're running a big show called Train Fest, you mm. think that would have, you know, we, we see the younger generation in that, but, um, again, like Clark was saying in that with, uh, Roger and that, you have to be able to, uh, catch them and, um, hopefully you, you entice them and, uh, mm. they'll, they'll join and maybe with them seeing these online clinics online, maybe they may, that may be enough of a spark kind of going to them, you know, Hey, now I can see there's some benefit and, uh-huh. and who knows, maybe, uh, with that, they'll, they'll look into joining the NMRA. Maybe they'll then in turn look at uh, becoming more, um, of a participant in their, their division that they would live in, or, mm. or even if not their division, maybe there's their, their region or something like that. And, you know, maybe you might get more activity, but I know I was reading one online article about a year ago that dealt more with car museums, but mm-hmm. uh, it it crossovers to almost any other type of organization. And in the article, it basically stated that the the millennials and the younger generation and that, they would love to join a lot of these organizations as long as they can get the one-on-one interaction mm. and so the, the respect when they have opinions mm. with it. Um, I know in organizations like the Illinois Railway Museum, they have a large youth participating group, you know, mm-hmm. under the 30, you know, 30 to, you know, teenage years. Uh, there, there's uh, one gentleman that I, I'm Facebook friends with that's a, a member and volunteer at Illinois Railway Museum. And he's been volunteering ever since his high school days. And now he's uh, figuring out a career path and, but he's still an active volunteer out there. He just recently passed his uh, his uh, uh, engineer's card so he Wonderful. could operate equipment out cool. there. So it, and I mean, I think the Illinois Rail Museum is a really good example because you talk about teenagers, but they start young. Yeah. I mean, they start really young. The teenagers 
are the folks that have spent, you know, five, six, eight years going to the Illinois Rail Museum, maybe for annual things, maybe for seasonal things, maybe for summer shows. I mean, they work out really smartly how they can target the youngest possible folk with the view yep. that when they become teenagers, when they have slightly more independence of movement and what have you, then they come back and join and, and go through that whole process. But what fascinates me about the Illinois Rail Museum is that they were so smart with regards to bringing in the various age demographics. And a large part of it is obviously they have a, an amazing facility with, you know, trains, rolling stock, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And, but, and the other, that's, other part of it too is there, there's no real easy way for uh, individuals to get out there. It isn't like you can hop a, a bus to get out there or, or a train to get out there. You, you have to physically drive or, or uh, get like a taxi uh, to take yeah. you out. Cool. You know, it's out in the middle of uh, a farm field and that. Uh, so the, to get people from the Chicago suburbs or, or from the Rockford metro area or even southeastern Wisconsin, you know, it's basically the, the teenagers are getting their driver's license mm -hmm. and, and now they're able to go out there and volunteer on their own without their parents maybe taking them out there. Certainly, certainly. But, I mean, you've experienced the Illinois Rail Museum. How do they do it? I mean, do they have various, I mean, are, are there, like, teenage leadership groups that have teenagers and members of staff? I mean, how do they bring in all the age demographics so successfully? It, 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 if I knew, I I wouldn't be wondering how, how they're doing it. Okay. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I'll need to wait till we have someone on who has come up through the hierarchy because I know we've, we've talked to half a dozen people that have been very active with the uh, with the museum, and I know many of them are now in their early, mid-20s, and many are older than that. So, yeah. yeah, they have an amazing formula. Returning, I guess, to kind of Gordy as a visionary, but not even really Gordy as a visionary because we talked about it with regards to, obviously, the stuff that Tom Gazier and Luke Lemons and these folk are doing in the Twin Cities and their best practices. I mean, there seem to be small groups of folk who are kind of collectively doing this. And obviously, we talked to Martin Jenkins periodically as well. What do you think is going to happen through this period? Do you think we're going to have like best practices or do you think there are going to be the Twin Cities will do it one way, NMRX will do it another way? You know, I mean, how do you think these things will unify over time? I That's another thing I'm not really sure because I know like the Twin Cities group, for example, they haven't uh, done anything for the past couple of weekends. I think a lot of it is maybe that the sheer fact it's starting to get warmer in the Midwest. Yeah. And now people are able to do things out in their gardens and yes. and start their art, outdoor activities because, you know, in the Midwest, we have just that one good uh, three or four months uh, season. <laughs> Unlike you get into uh, down south or uh, in uh, in that where you you actually have two some for some areas, two moderate rain seasons, the mm. uh, late winter, early spring time frame uh is you know they're outdoors and then summertime they're back indoors and in, in a cool area yes the two hot and, phenomena yeah yeah and then you get you get your your fall and they're back outdoors and then in the winter it's to them it's too cold and they're back indoors again yes it is interesting how that varies by region also i mean in the current crisis there i mean even the, you might not know this but there's a difference between northern california and southern california they have different remits. So where I am, we are on super hyper lockdown still. The police are still 
enforcing lockdown. In Southern California, the beaches are open in some jurisdictions. So you have this strange distinction currently associated with regional municipalities, in some cases state governments. I mean, I think certainly all of us are, if we have gardens, smuggling in some garden time in there without question. But it is interesting how, you know, the various municipalities are handling this. And also, in particular, for the demographics that we are talking to, you know, in the model railroading hobby, irrespective of whether or not the, you know, local areas open up, I think a large number of people just through concerns about health alone are probably going to be more, um, you know, reticent to, you know, start going out to eat and these kind of things. So it is interesting how this thing will evolve over time. And if the period of lockdown has been enough to show, you know, people the, the benefits of this kind of technology, because as you say, when the crisis isn't there, and maybe the crisis isn't there in terms of weather currently, but when the forcing factors to get people to watch these videos or what have you aren't there, will it just seem like something that was done at a particular time? Or, you know, can we actually learn from this and create, you know, virtual NMRA conventions going forward? What are your thoughts? Well, I think there will always be time and opportunity to do these online clinics, even even in the summer, you know, you know, like I know today was a 12 hour time frame. <laughs> Maybe uh, next month might only be a six hour time frame. Yes. Or maybe they may look at it where do a couple of clinics, you know, every Saturday night or something like that, yes. as an example. Just for the sheer fact, uh, for me, I only watched a little bit of one clinic while I was eating breakfast. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, then it was outdoors to. Uh, work on my my uh, bridge module. Wonderful work there, by the way. Yep, and uh, then uh, then it was also uh, uh, then prepping the the garden in that yes. uh, for the afternoon. And in fact, one of the reasons I was on the call a little bit later this evening was I was outdoors picking up uh, the mess from building another uh, planter box in our in our uh, vegetable garden. Yeah, you've got quite a nice garden happening this year, Mike Slater. I'm not sure. If it's the lockdown or just you're putting up photos, but I was looking at your area quite uh, almost jealously in terms of the space that you have. So yeah, no the uh, the uh, planter gardens. I uh, did the boxes a few years back just because my mother is getting up there in age, and mm-hmm. for her to get on her hands and knees to do the weeding is tough. So I did the, the right smaller planters. planter boxes yeah, and certainly. Um, to make it easier for uh, her to, to work in the, uh, the vegetable garden. And, of course, our st- strawberries were in one box, and it overgrew that, so I put them into a secondary box. And so I had to build another box, uh, uh, which I got pretty close to about uh, two-thirds full of soil, and I had mm-hmm. to go out more soil. But, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's coming along nicely. And, and uh, I know a little bit this afternoon also started a little fire in the uh, fire pit and Enjoyed the fire while I was working on the the modules or working in the garden. And let's talk a little bit about the the bridge module because you did a technique that I'd never seen explicitly talked about associated with. I mean, let's describe this. This is a substantial module, right? It's about six feet long. Okay, and it's a bridge, and it it has, I guess, a, a river running under it, basically. Correct. Uh, it's not not a, a massive river. As one would say, you know, the the Ritt River in the area where the bridge was, you know, it was 
uh, a pretty narrow uh, stream almost in that area, but it, the ravine that it crossed over needed a, a substantial bridge. So, in terms of it, in terms of what you've done in the past couple of weeks, can you describe what what's gone on? Well, the initial construction of the the module would be just kind of think of. Uh, two uh, smaller rectangular boxes mm-hmm. and then in between the rectangular boxes I I added a, a one by four to connect the two boxes together uh, and then in that uh, u-shaped uh, plywood box that I now have I filled in the that u uh, portion with uh, two inch thick styrofoam and then from there I I carved the styrofoam, uh, to form the valley and also the riverbed, um, mm. a technique that a lot of different modelers have uh, done in the past. It, primarily for a module, it, it helps uh, keep it lightweight, uh, even though, uh, yeah, it, it's going to be a module that's going to require two people to, to set up uh, just because, you know, the, the heft of it. Uh, right now I'm able to, to lug it around on my own, but when I put it in the... Uh, the transport crate, which is also going to in turn be made out of plywood mm. uh, to protect the overhead catenary wire or trolley wire. Uh, that, that'll that add probably, you know, the weight of the module itself will be in the transport box. Mm. But yet the actual uh, application of, I don't know, soil, for want of a better term, recently I found was really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Oh, that's basically all I uh, initially did. Um, was, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the exact term. Uh, basically I took, uh, plaster. I took some cheap, uh, uh, miscolored brown paint that I found at my local home improvement <laughs> store for nine, nine bucks for the gallon. You know, yes. I don't know what shade of brown it is, but you know, it's going to get covered up anyways. So who cares type of brown. <laughs> and, uh, then I, for my initial layer, I, I, uh, took some, um, uh, newsprint type blown in wall insulation and kind of made a, uh, I guess you could call it kind of a paper mache, uh, mm. goopy, uh, I think they call it ground goop is mm. one of the technical terms. Uh, that was my initial kind of rough covering to kind of fill in the big voids in the styrofoam and, and, uh, cause the, the paper mache kind of keeps it fluffy and not so dense and doesn't add tons of weight to it. Uh, and then of course then, the next layer I did, I basically just did the the plaster with some uh, the brown latex paint and water, mm-hmm. and kind of smeared that over the top just to kind of smooth it out. And of course, uh, I can't remember if the the pictures that I shown at that time if I did any sanding on it or not. But uh, I sanded out some of the the rougher bumps and that uh, out of it. And mm. now it's I just got to pour a little bit more plaster to kind of level out the riverbed a little bit. Mm. And from there, I'll be able to start painting the riverbed and uh, try to get the uh, the bridges uh, bridge set in place here pretty soon. Uh, I just didn't want to set it in place when I it was still creating a lot of uh, plaster dust. Certainly, certainly. So will it have will it have naturally looking water in the river eventually? Is that the aim? I'm hoping it'll have naturally looking water since I've never done water before. Wonderful. So what technique are you going to use? I've actually been watching a Luke Cowan uh, video. Because the Root River is not a clear river, it's kind of a muddy-looking river. I've seen on one of his videos 
uh, Woolland Scenics had a, a muddy river type water epoxy, two part epoxy that you'd mix together. And so I purchased uh, some Vallejo earth texture stuff that he used in the video. So I, that'll be the first time ever using that. Mm. So it's going to be a lot of different experimentation. Wonderful. I've been finding uh, some leaves off the tree that I kind of got stuck in some of the flower beds and <laughs> grinding those in a, in a cheap blender that I bought just for doing scenery grinding and stuff Wonderful. like that. So just trying a lot of different things and different techniques and great. Hopefully it works out and it doesn't look like um, I need to throw it on the fire pit, but <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing more photos, Mike. It's been a really impressive build so far. Thank you for, for posting them and keeping us up to date. It's nice to see, you know, COVID-19 projects as they evolve. Yeah, not a problem. Anytime, Tom. Well, thank you very much for calling in today, Mike. We've got Nigel Gatchaw, and then I think I'll wrap this one up, but pleasure chatting as always. Take care. I'd like to welcome on Nigel Gatchaw. Nigel, when we last spoke, you were finishing your train layout shed. I think that's what it's been officially referred to historically. Where is that currently? Is that nearly done? Uh, floor's getting closer. I did one third um, with the finished product a couple of weekends ago. And then the, yesterday I was preparing the last two thirds, which is about uh, uh, 20 feet by about 20 feet. So just waiting for that to dry and then uh, some cool. primer and some top coat. Yeah, cool. it doesn't quite go as far as I said. So I'm going to have to buy another packet of it, container. So we're getting there. Yeah. And once that's done, will it be a finished environment? Is it then back to putting in the stuff which I guess historically been in there, but now maybe de-dusting or something like that? I mean, what, what's the what's the process once you actually have it finished? Oh, I'm going to do some skirting boards after that, but it's mm -hmm. it's fairly well finished all together now in terms of uh, the gyprock. I may close in the roller doors just to keep out all the little uh, friendly oh, critters. Yeah. They seem to love it. Um, but, yeah, starting a new layout, I'm using Third Rail Planet to um, start a layout. I, I found the one on the web somewhere that I liked, which doesn't actually use a, a helix. It actually uses a, what they call a nolix, isn't it? Mm. So just been trying to work out the all the maths behind that and make sure I'm not having 6% grades or anything mm. like that and that the heights will work out. I've always liked the nolix as a concept. I've always thought that in particular for certain kinds of... And you can do switchbacks. You can do a variety of different ways to avoid the 6% grades. But yeah, it's always struck me as a superior version of a Helix, but I'm in the vast minority. Can you talk a little bit about what you're, what you're planning with Nolix? Um, it'll, yeah, it will switch back on itself, so it'll, it'll be around 20 feet area, so, mm -hmm. and then it'll go across, do a... 180 back on, or, yeah, 180 back on itself and back up to the, to the upper deck. And yeah, planning to, I'm planning to use that as a, a good basis for, uh, scenery, like mm. some, some nice, cause you got a, an area there with, with track going over top of each other. So I'm seeing it as a good opportunity to have some nice, um, bridges and also sure. some, um, mountains and mm. probably just short tunnels going through something. Similar to what I've seen in some of the DVDs that I've watched. So yeah, that's um that's the cunning plan, and yeah, and at least you sort of see the 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 uh, train going the whole way. So 
but it's going to be a challenge. But yeah, it'll be good. That's so just that's yeah. The main thing is getting the maths right. I think if it's going to be two percent, I think a lot of people recommend one and a half as the mm-hmm. maximum. But I've just in kinds of locomotives and rolling stock, two percent is just fine. I mean, I think. Um, yeah. In fact, if you look at the prototypes, you know, a lot of these things with switchbacks and what have you are two and a half percent or more. So, yeah, two percent I think is a calm medium, and you shouldn't have any problems with uh, with one day uh, locomotives and rolling stock with two percent. No, I think the uh, the previous layout I had had two percent and didn't have too many troubles there. So there was the odd one, but um, otherwise everything was fine with that, especially if you're running. Something looking fairly prototypical where you're double heading a locomotive and probably 20, 20 cars or wagons. So, mm, I haven't had any problem in the past. So, I was just reading an article, a couple articles in the other. I think it was actually, um, part of that NMRA X that was on actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Clark Kooning, I think he was saying the maximum was one and a half, which I thought was interesting. Like, oh, a little bit higher than that. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, Clark, he's a stickler for these kind of things. So. If anyone's going to put out a number, it's going to be Clark. Yeah. So in terms of lockdown, I mean, I hear reports from Australia all the time associated with things changing. How heavily are you guys on lockdown currently? Uh, here in Queensland, we're being slowly sort of released uh, as of today, I think it was. Um, you can now, was originally 50 kilometres you could drive, now it's 150. Gosh. And I think gathering, the, the restaurants are opening, but they only... I think I think it all depends on the square area, but Certainly. currently I think they're saying a maximum of ten people, and they're still trying the one and a half meters six foot yeah. um, separation between everyone. So we're slowly getting back, but obviously they're watching for a second wave, and, and then they'll um, obviously adjust accordingly depending on how they go. So I think um, most of it's we're certainly down to single digits, only so, you know, one or one or two. A day they're reporting, sometimes zero. Hmm. And most of it came from you know, a little bit flights, but a lot of it came, especially the deaths over here, was from uh, cruises. Yeah, the cruises. Just like your wife was on. Yeah, the cruises. Um, I mean, my mother's based in Sydney. As soon as the cruises arrived, my mother got out of Sydney. Um, <laughs> right. they, yeah, that whole thing was very strange um, with the cruises. Yeah, my wife was very lucky. The cruise she was on, uh, one person had a cold. And that basically kept them out for a day when they went through and screened everyone. She flew home and was fine. Strangely, at the time, I was very sick, but I couldn't get tested because I hadn't been to China. I mean, we were really in this kind of crazy stage where even though we had our first confirmed death in early February, and this was early March, they were still, and they still, there still is an issue here associated with getting tested. It's still really, really difficult to get tested here. Um, mm-hmm. And they put, you know, they're like, oh, testing's now open, but you have to answer these five questions the right way before we test you. It's like, okay, is it open or <laughs> is it... Anyway, I could talk about this yeah. ad nauseum. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, I, the circumstances here are, are pretty curious. And I think what's really interesting is that the, the projections are that between 10 to 70 times the number of people have actually been impacted than what's being reported. And I think that's probably highly accurate. So mm. we'll just have to see what happens. But yeah, we are still on pretty heavy lockdown. California's gone bankrupt in the period, though. So they're trying to ease some of these restrictions just because they have no money left, um, which wow. is really curious. So yeah, it's, it's an easing of restrictions for economic reasons. Absolutely no public health 
just goes, but Southern California and Northern California are different. The area that I'm in in Northern California, they know basically that the, you know, this is where the first cases were reported. And also we've had, in terms of being surveyed, the largest impact in the area. So yeah, it's still interesting times here. Um, the, the jobs, the various tech companies are saying, you know, up till the end of the year, potentially. So we just got to sit it out and see what happens. Um, yeah, I think our work is talking about being in June, bringing some people back, but not, mm. not all of them. Mostly the people that, um, have difficulty working from home. Uh, we have a lot of, uh, drafters. So mm-hmm. they use AutoCAD and they need to be high end machines. So they can't sort of really put that under their arm and bring in back, foot back and forward from work very easily. So yeah. they're probably looking at bringing them in first with the rest of us who can work remotely. They'll probably keep us going. Yes. To be continued. To be continued. Anyway, Nigel, thank you for calling in today. Pleasure catching up as always. And, uh, looking forward to seeing when everything's, you know, completed in terms of, uh, finishing the space and seeing what you do with it. So. Yeah, a no, long time good. coming. Yeah. Oh, it has. It's four years or something. So, yeah, something yes, like that. Chipping away, yes. Wonderful. Anyway, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Well, a short model rail radio today. It's also been a little bit hot. My wife has given me her quilting room as a means of recording, but also, um, yeah, I can't run the air conditioner and do model rail radio at the same time. So I may move back to my dank podcasting room purely for cool reasons um, as they come up. I have thought also the weekly recording has been very useful in terms of catching up with people and also content, but I'm a bit behind in the editing. So I'm going to keep doing it weekly, though, folks. I'm going to keep this thing up for pretty well as long as I can, and uh, the edits will just come out when they come out. Um, my hope is I'll get an edit out uh, in the next couple of days and see how we go on the uh, remaining ones. But, yeah, the, the one involving uh, Gordy in particular, it was Gordy and Luke Lemons called into the same show, and that's, I think, one away from the one that I'm editing. Uh, but, yeah, that's just a show that has to come out, and the community has to have a chance to have a listen to that one. So I'm looking forward to getting that one out. And yeah, a bunch of other really good shows that unfortunately are just slow to be edited. So apologies to folks, uh, but uh, they will come out eventually. I will eventually be able to find the time. So thanks to the folks for participating today. Thanks to the folks for listening in. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Goodbye, Tom. Good afternoon, Tom. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, Tom.